0: Well, we got a light crowd this morning, but welcome all. As we continue to uh, study this book, Untangling Emotions, we are in what we might call uh, even a more practical section of the book where we're looking at some particular emotions and beginning to identify how we can engage them. And if you remember, you know, the overall perspective, uh, either you're a, a, a stuffer or a spewer, um, we all have our own dispositional tendencies, uh, but there are four steps that he gave us in working through our emotions, uh, identifying, examining, evaluating, and then acting or engaging our, our particular emotion. <clears throat> so the last section of the book has been engaging these particular things and kind of working through each of these steps. We've looked at engaging fear We've looked at engaging anger, and this morning we're looking at engaging grief, engaging grief. Well, let me open us up in prayer, and then we'll get going. Our gracious Father, we come into your presence this morning thankful for the day that you've given, and particularly thankful for the Lord's Day, a day of rest and gladness, a day of fellowship with your people, a day of eager anticipation, of You meeting with us and addressing us with Your Word. Lord, we pray that on this day that You would nourish our souls with Your truth, that You would fortify our faith, that You would give us deeper understanding into the complexities of our own hearts. You would rebuke and correct us, train us in righteousness with the truths of Your Word, and be with us this morning as we consider untangling our emotions and thinking about grief. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as we come to discuss entangling grief, uh, this one, much like fear and much like anger, is just a reality that we have to deal with, and it's a reality in a fallen world. And again, I want us to remember there's hope in Revelation 21 of a day with no more grief. Uh, One of the most beautiful promises of what life will be like in the new heavens and new earth in a restored state is in Isaiah 35, when all sorrowing and sighing will flee away. Or Revelation 21, 4, when the Lord is wiping away every tear from our eye and there will be no more mourning, no crying, no pain, no death. But that is not our present existence. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 4 tells us that there is a time to weep And a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. Now you remember, uh, Ecclesiastes is giving us a perspective of life under the curse, right? And there's an appointed time for everything, for every season under heaven as we live under the curse. So the very thought process of Ecclesiastes 3 really takes us back to Genesis 3 and reminds us of what all has come to us in the fall And because of the fall, we have all kinds of messy emotions to deal with. Uh, We won't have these messy emotions, thankfully, in the future. Uh, But we still will have to deal with um, our emotional nature. It would just be one of great joy. But now uh, we're thinking about this reality of grief. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to analyze a handful of questions. What is grief? How is grief all tangled up with our other emotions? How does grief relate How does grief motivate? And then we'll begin to try to uh, examine, identify our grief and evaluate it. All right. So that's kind of what we're doing this morning. So what exactly is grief? How do we describe this? Like every other attempt to make a definition of your emotions, it's difficult. This is very broad. Um, To experience loss. What is grief? It's the experience of loss. And again, this is not something that we're going to have in the new heavens and new earth in the same way, right? Not at all. We're we're seeing the removal of all that troubles us gone. But now we're in a place where we experience loss. And we can more particularly say the loss of something important to you. Now, this could be something that is both... The something that's important to you could be positive or negative. We could talk about the loss of a person which brings tremendous grief, and a grief that we're all going to experience. Some of us are still experiencing, um, but it, you know, that's a reality we, we're going to face, death in a fallen world. The, the loss could be a pleasure or, or a joy. David in Psalm 13 discusses how he has sorrow in his heart all the day because of Saul's relentless pursuit of him. And he's experiencing the loss of freedom, the loss of the experience of fellowship with the people of God uh, in, in the cultic center, uh, which is not yet located in Jerusalem. But nevertheless, there was a place where God's people would gather to worship. And he's cut off from that. And he experiences great loss. Psalm 102 talks about the loss. It's a prayer of an afflicted man who is sick. And it talks about the loss of Physical things with respect to the body, the loss of sleep, uh, the loss of health. And that could be a grief to us. And some of us, again, have experienced that, and if you haven't, you will. right? Uh, we could talk about the loss of something that's a negative aspect. Uh, Ahab, in First Kings 21, wants Naboth's vineyard. It's right by his dwelling place, and he wants to claim it for himself. And when, when uh, Naboth tells Ahab, No, you can't have my family inheritance, you can't have our land, uh, we find the king going to his bed and sulking in grief because he doesn't get what he wants. Our grief can be like that. Maybe your grief is self centered, self absorbed. Maybe your, the loss of something important to you is an idol, and it shouldn't be important to you, but nevertheless it is, and you still experience grief. So again, grief is complicated. Just like anger was, just like fear was. Well, let's think about how grief is all tangled up with other emotions. And I know already I'm not going to be able to keep a running list of this, but I'm going to, I'm going to try. And I want you to, to think with me about other emotions that are connected to grief. So let me, let me kind of draw a line and we'll, we'll write them down. Other emotions connected to grief. What can you think of? Okay. Keep it coming. Okay. Jealousy, anger, fear. Okay, a general distress. Some of you say, well, these are all just synonyms of one another, aren't they? <laughs> uh, Maybe. Maybe up, not. But it can be tangled up with joy and relief. Okay. Uh, relief. Joy. Any any other that you can think of? I tried to make a list. Um, I might have a few more, but Okay, well let's let's think about these for a minute. And let me, let me see if my list can can compare to some of the ones that you have. Um, let, let me pick anger, which is really easy. Uh, and I'll, I'm going to give you a biblical example for all the ones that I can come up with. Uh, David has been fighting with the Philistines and he's told them he can go to war with them against Saul. And the kings of the Philistines say, uh-uh, we don't trust you. So he goes back and the Amalekites have seized David's Wives, children, and the wives and children of all the men in David's army. And how do you think those men respond to that situation? They want to kill David. They have a moment of just spewing everything, and they want him dead. They are frustrated with the situation. That immediate loss brought to them a stir of anger in their hearts. That's certainly the case. Um, Fear. the Lord addresses Joshua in Joshua chapter one, Moses, my servant is dead. Now you arise and take this people into the land. And what's one of the predominant commands the Lord gives to Joshua? Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. He, he keeps telling him, fear not, fear not, fear not. Don't be afraid. I will be with you. No one will be able to resist you. Don't be afraid. What, what does that tell us about the situation and his grief? He's He's scared. Uh, a general distress. How about uh, paralyzation? Is that close enough to, to distress? Lucy, I think you, you said distress. Where you feel like you can't move. You can't do anything. The Lord tells Samuel in First Samuel 16, um, why are you still grieving over Saul, who I've rejected from being king? Fill your horn with oil and go. I've seen a king among Jesse's sons, and I'm going to Have you anoint him? He's paralyzed. He's stuck. He doesn't know what to do. He's not sure how to move forward. Uh, That's the situation. What about joy or hope? 1 Thessalonians 4, we're supposed to grieve as we lose people in Christ with a certain emotion. Not losing hope, right? Or not losing our, our joy, recognizing what is to come for the people of God. That the dead in Christ will be raised with Christ, and actually they'll get raised before those of us who are remaining uh, on the earth will be raised. It, it will be fast, but nevertheless, uh, they get to go first. How about, um, how about a, just a general wicked unbelief that could be filled with your grief? When Judas betrayed Jesus and he feels guilty about it, what does he do with the money that he received for betraying Jesus? Do you remember? Yeah, he, he threw it back at the uh, at the religious leaders, which they wouldn't accept it because it was blood money, and they're going to use it to buy a field. But then what does Jesus do? He goes and hangs himself. Um, that's grief leading to you to a wrong direction, but grief filled with unbelief. There's no possibility of turning back. There is no hope. There's only darkness. Lethargy might be related to paralyzation, but lethargy, or just a sense of helplessness. Mephibosheth, when David is fleeing from Absalom and he's chased out of the city and he's gone for a while, Mephibosheth, who you remember is lame in, in both feet, he has some sense of paralysis, he doesn't take care of his body. That's his evidence to David that he was grieving. He, he, doesn't, he can't bathe himself, but he, he doesn't care for himself, he doesn't care for his feet, uh, so he's just totally in a state of lethargy, anxiety, or fear in general. But maybe I'll focus more on anxiety. And, and, I'll, and I'll do a couple of these. Um, Joseph, Jacob thinks, has been killed by wild animals. And time has gone by and there, there's now a famine in the land. He has no idea that Joseph is actually in Egypt. But the brothers go to Egypt, they get grain, they come back, and there was a conversation that had happened between the brothers and Joseph that they didn't know was Joseph, and he, Joseph had asked about their younger brother, Benjamin, and, well, when you come back, bring him with you. Well, when they tell that to their dad, Jacob, he's like, no way, and he responds with, there's no way you can take him. If, if I were to lose him, I've already lost one son. Now, he has a whole host of sons. You see his jealousy there. But if I were to lose him, it would bring my head down to Sheol in grief. He's anxious about losing his son. Or if we back up, when the report comes to Jacob that Joseph uh, has been killed, again, he hasn't, but he doesn't know, he goes into a state of total depression where no one can talk to him. He, He won't be approached by anyone. He refuses all comforters in Genesis 37. So there can be a sense of depression. There can be an embarrassment that's associated with grief. The woman with the flow of blood, she's grieving that she's spent all of her money on people who can't help her, physicians. And she wants just to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. She doesn't want to be noticed. She doesn't want to be talked to. Why? She has an embarrassing affliction and in her grief, it's mingled up with embarrassment. Um, A few more of these. Silence. Who do you remember when they came to associate with someone grieving? They did nothing. They were just silent. Job's friends. It's often said that's the best thing that they ever did, right? They just were quiet. They were just there. Grief can bring silence. And I think In our culture, in particular, we have a problem with silence. We think all silence is awkward. It isn't. Silence is good. But we have noise that's incessant. And we're obsessed with noise. That's a topic for a different day. and, And all the ways in which I could prove to you that we're obsessed with noise. But the idea of going to speak to someone in grief and the thought, of I'm, I'm going to maybe say one thing and to just sit there and be quiet. We're uncomfortable with that. We think we have to have some elaborate speech ready to present to them on the thing that they're dealing with and how the truth of God can help them. Just go and shut up. Just be there. Don't, you don't have to talk. Sometimes you don't need to talk. You just need to be present. That's really important. So silence can be there. Uh, shame. A little bit different than just general embarrassment, but just shame. When Jonathan finds out that his daddy is trying to kill David and he's lied to Jonathan about his desire to kill David, he's ashamed of the situation. So he's got grief and he's got shame. What am I missing? I think some of this can co- cover under a, a disappointment. Jealousy. How might we see a biblical example of grief? Mixed with jealousy. We could say that the, the religious leadership in Jerusalem are, we know they're jealous of Jesus, but we could say it's mixed with grief out of their fear for what is going to happen if Jesus prevails. So I, I think that it, it wouldn't be a strange thing to associate it. What about just total perplexity? Um, when Jesus finally comes to the scene in John 11 where Lazarus has died, they had sent word Mary and Martha that he was sick. But when Jesus finally comes, Martha and Mary ask Jesus independently of one another, really the same question, or they make a question sort of statement, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. Jesus doesn't really respond to that, um which is interesting in and of itself. Sometimes we say things that we ought not say and the Lord just lets it go by. But there's a a true perplexity. We could read the whole book of Lamentations and we could see perplexity. And again, we're uncomfortable with being perplexed. Thankfully, there's a wonderful hymn um, that William Cooper wrote about being perplexed at God's providence. God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He 's pretty honest about the difficulty about how you know it he talks about dark clouds and a flower but that's yet in the bud and he, and he's showing you look I, I don't i don't know how to see through the present situation. I just know the ultimate thing is God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain, but that's not a promise to me that i 'll know. I have to be comfortable living in perplexity. well what about just Total terror. Now, Thomas gave us uh, a couple weeks ago the notion of fear. And really, as you read the Bible, um, we're told more than any other command that I can think of scripturally not to be afraid. It's about a hundred times we're told do not be afraid or do not fear. It's over and over and over. But there's one legitimate fear. And it was what? The fear of the Lord. Now, we can have terror in a a very negative way associated with grief. Judgment is coming, and you're terrified. A, a, A dread of the Lord. Or, Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when He says that His soul is sorrowful to the point of death, and He's in great distress. It's an understatement of what's going on with him. The notion is he is terrified. Why? I thought it was sinful to be afraid. Well, what exactly is he terrified as he looks at in his future? His loss of communion with God. The experience of the loss of something important to you. Jesus is marching towards hell. Of course he's distressed. He knows better than any of us how horrible that is. And yet, as a man, he doesn't have complete knowledge of it. So he enters into what he doesn't know, terrified, and yet he still goes forward. Um, There's a Scottish divine... um, John Duncan, they called him, his nickname was Rabbi Duncan because of his knowledge of Hebrew. But, but he famously said that Jesus took damnation and took it lovingly. As he is terrified of the damnation that's being presented to him, the sword of the, of the Father's wrath is drawn, and he knows there's no sparing, and he's terrified. Do you see how complicated grief is? Um, grief is not going to present itself to you in just this night, nice, tidy little emotion that you can deal with. It's going to come all tangled up. Now, let's think now about how how does grief relate? And this is complicated. Um, How does grief relate? The assumption here, of course, is that all of our emotions are trying to help us relate to God and relate to one another. And yet, um, when we look at, examine how people respond in grief there's a lot of times that grief tells you you just want to be alone. And again, that's the example I already gave with, with Jacob when it's reported to him that his son Joseph has been killed by a wild animal. Um, he wants to be left alone. He said, well, when he heard the news, he tore his garments, put on sackcloth, mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Leave me alone. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to talk about it. I'm not, I don't want to deal with it. Is that a healthy response to grief? Absolutely not. Counter the terror I just mentioned with Jesus. I've always found this incredibly interesting. Jesus enters into the Garden of Gethsemane. <clears throat> And all all the apostles are there, save Judas, so there are 11 of them. Eight of them stay at the front, and then Jesus has three of them go in closer, and He asks them to do something. Watch with me. Why? Jesus is a real man who needs friends in His moment of greatest terror here is the one who needs nothing, needing something. Isn't that mystifying? Um, And he's communicating the depth of his need. You know, how dare we think we don't need anyone in our grief when the Lord Jesus, in grief that's truly understandable, facing the very terror of the Lord, needed people. He needed his friends. Um, And of course, he's telling them, you're going to be assaulted. You know, watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation but watch with me. I I need you. I need your support. I need your knowledge. I I need the very fact that you're just here with me. That's a striking thing. Uh, So how does grief relate? There is a need of God and a need of others. Need of God. Communion with God. That's what we see Jesus pursuing in prayer. Father, if it would be possible for this cup, you know to pass for me let it let that be done but I mean, not my will but your will be done of course there's a need of relationship to god or what about david when david is told because of his sin with bathsheba and his murder of uriah that the baby born a son will die do you remember what david does at, at that news <clears throat> he mourns he he goes he, he's fasting he's putting on sackcloth And he's in the presence of the child, mourning, weeping, praying. The child dies, like the Lord said the child would. And they're afraid, the the servants are afraid to tell him the news. If this is the way he's behaving when the child was sick, what's he going to do when the child dies? What does David do? He rises up. He washes himself, puts on different clothes, anoints himself with oil. And the first thing he does is not go get a sandwich. He goes to the presence of God and he worships. Or Job. Job is struck with this most horrific news about the death of his children, about the attacks on his crops, all these things have taken place. And what does he say? Um, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. You know the next line, right? Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's grieving, but in his grief, he's relating to God. He's going to the Lord. If we can learn anything from Scripture about how the God we deal with grief is that they take their grief to the Lord. We can see this in so many psalms about bringing all of our heart to God, bringing our grief of our present situation, our hard circumstances, our sickness, our sin, whatever you're grieving over. We have a need to relate to God. But then we also have a need to relate to one another. Um, all of you can probably quote Romans 12, where we're supposed to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We'll focus here on the weeping part. Uh, Of course, let me ask you a question. How can you weep with those who weep if you don't know that people are weeping? You can't. So doesn't it already assume something about relationship, about how we relate to one another? Now, it doesn't mean, I don't think it means that when you're grieving, you need to stand up on Sunday morning before the call to worship or after the benediction and tell everybody, hey, everybody, I just want you to know I'm in a state of grief, so let's all cry together. Let me tell you about the circumstance. Um, but I think it does assume <clears throat> that there's a, a bond of relationship in the body where we are willing to relate our grief to others, and as we relate our grief, allow them to enter into our sorrow. How do we do that? Or do we, are we content to grieve alone? It's never good when the devil gets you isolated because he, he does all kinds of horrible things to you and he, he works on you. He, he's a prowling lion seeking whom he may devour. And lions are looking for the, the wildebeest or the antelope on the edge. To isolate and destroy, so that that's not good. Or the garrison demoniac, he's filled with a legion of demons. And where is he? He's by himself. He's among the tombs, and he's grieving. He's crying out in pain, right? He's cutting himself with uh, with rocks or stones, instruments of pottery probably. He's overwhelmed. But he's alone, and that's how the devil wants you to grieve. We've got to learn in our grief to relate to others. And it requires something of us who are grieving that we are willing to express our hearts, willing to have others enter into our sorrow. And it requires something on the part of others that we pay attention, that we're trying to notice who is grieving. And then we, 2 2 Corinthians 1 we comfort others with the comfort with which we have been comforted in Christ. There's a, t- there's a time to be silent. There's a time to speak. You've got to figure out when that is in the face of grief. There's a time just to be there and be quiet. There's a time just to weep and be quiet in terms of your words. But there's also a time to comfort others with truth. First, Thessalonians 4. <clears throat> I'll read this little section. Verse 13. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And hear this verse. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That will not be the only time Paul says something like that. In the face of your grief, <clears throat> encourage one another. Again, it's assuming this relationship, a re- relating to God in our grief, but also relating to one another, to the people of God. How does grief motivate us? Again, we've learned in this study that our emotions motivate us to action. <clears throat> Give me some examples that could be positive or negative about how grief motivates Okay, so, you know exactly what they because there. so it motivates you to be a comforter because you understand grief. You see sympathy. Again, I'll use Jesus as an example in John 11, which is just a marvelous passage for the whole subject. But when Jesus goes to Mary and Martha and He gets the question... Or the statement, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And then he begins to talk to Mary specifically. Uh, Do you believe your brother will rise again? Yes, I believe, you know, in the last day he'll rise again. Jesus says, no, I'm the resurrection of the life. Right. And he begins to explain. And then they go to the tomb and Jesus is greatly distressed and troubled, which, again, is just a, not a good translation. He's angry. But right before that, you have the shortest verse in the Bible, which everybody knows, right? Jesus weeps. Jesus wept, right? Jesus is sympathizing. So one way in which we recognize that grief motivates is if we're touched with the concern of others, it motivates us to grieve with them, and it motivates us to be a source of compassion to them. If we can do something... Grief motivates us to do that as we enter into the sorrows of another. So that's a good example. Any others you can think of? Hm. So one of the things I can do is cause doubt. Um think possible uh you know when uh everything's falling apart. Right so <coughs> what you're saying is when you're going through that especially particular personality, she you do tend to withdraw. Yeah. Yeah, Psalm one thirty one is a is a brilliant example, you know, of of pointing one another to the sovereignty of God and the power of God. That he he says, "O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me." Um, God does things that are beyond my understanding, and His knowledge is vast. He's saying, "But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother." What's the difference between A nursing child with its mother and a weaned child with his mother. Well, a nursing child is going to start fussing for a desire to nurse. The weaned child can actually sit in mother's lap content. And that should be the posture of our soul. That's what the psalmist is saying. We have a a trust in the Lord. And that can be very helpful in grief. It can motivate us to see a sense of the, the greatness of God and a sense of submission to God. Yeah, that's good. Any other things you can think of in terms of how grief can motivate? motivate you to really trying to numb that pain. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I, so I think it's important to recognize the negative aspect of how grief can motivate. You can numb it with alcohol. You can numb it with drugs. You can numb it with the pursuit of immorality. You can numb grief with, escapism of another kind that we might call as a respectable sin, where you binge watch something, or you know, you you find something to do so that you aren't focused on your grief. You don't want to deal with it before the Lord. That that can be a dangerous thing. Um, I think we could also think of a false way as revenge. (laughs) When Pharaoh loses his son, the, the plague of the firstborn, when it strikes his own house, um, what does he do? He finally let Israel go, but what does he do? He chases them down. He, he's angry. He's motivated in his grief to go strike down. And that can happen to us. Also, with this relation to like, fear and anxiety, <clears throat> like how you were talking about how Jacob like- Yeah. Yes. Yes. So there, there becomes in our grief, and this can be actually the t- traumatic response in long-term grief, where we are going to isolate ourselves or figure out how to isolate and protect others and uh, exert control so as to protect ourselves from further grief. If you've been terribly hurt in a relationship or in a situation in life, a, a job situation then you're doing whatever you can to prevent that thing from happening to you further or to prevent it from happening to others. That could be good in some ways. It could be very destructive in others. So, yeah, that, that's, that's a good thing to think through. Again, I, I think there are a lot of ways we could explore this further. Our time is limited, but you, you see how all this is tangled up but there's no question that grief motivates us to do certain things. Um, as we identify our grief, so in, in terms of trying to engage it, you know, he, the, the author spoke analogously of, and this is a terrible drawing, so forgive that, uh, God's creation is much more beautiful than what I could represent to you, a spider's web. <clears throat> and when we lose something... When we lose something because of grief, we have all the pieces of connection that are ripped away. And it's often hard in our grief to recognize how this relationship touched that relationship and that relationship and that relationship and that relationship. And it's why, like at at Christmas time, when you you think the world's excited for Christmas, some people find it incredibly depressing because it just reminds them of everything Mama did and she's gone now. And... How do I begin to not only identify, but start like, engaging with my grief and examining what's going on? Well, I have to recognize, and this is scary, I have to start exploring the connections of the whole. The author used an, another analogy of uh, one of your children losing a tooth, and how you know when you lose a tooth, your, your tongue begins to explore the whole, and you find all the nooks and crannies and all the way it feels. Well, there's something you've got to do in your grief like that. You've got to explore every aspect of your grief. You have to probe the connections and discover what, what is the loss here. And in terms of healing, it's not replacing what was lost because that can't be done, but it's establishing new connections. Grief support groups are often simply telling you all about the connection I had with this person that I lost. And there's something that's healing in talking about the person that you lost because as you're discussing that with other people, you're now building new connections with them. And this is also, and I don't have time to get on a tangent about this, this is also what's destructive so often with trauma response because when people have trauma and they, they fall into a, a grief-induced post-traumatic stress problem, they don't want to talk about it. <clears throat> And therefore, they can't heal. And that grief is just perpetuated over and over and over and over again. That is not a healthy response to, to your situation. But we all know people that are like that. Maybe we have this tendency ourselves. What about examining grief? It's time to stop, and I, I have so many more things to say. Um, I think I've already told you the, the, the complexity that's here. But again, just just to remind you about the different types of grief, you can have the grief of guilt. Psalm 51, Psalm 32, David's sin and how he's grieved over it and how it's affected his relationship with God. You can have the grief of a death, obviously the loss of someone. When Saul is finally dead, but Jonathan also dies, what does David do? He grieves. He writes a lament for the children of Israel to sing, which is really striking. He wrote a lament to be sung in view of Saul, the very man trying to kill him. He doesn't say anything evil of him in his death. The grief of betrayal. Jesus feels this, and He uses language that comes from Psalm 55 and uh, another Psalm about, you know, Psalm 41. Lifting, he, He's lifted up His heel against me and, and my friend with whom I had fellowship with God. He, he's been the one to betray me. <clears throat> Jesus' words to Judas. Friend. Do what you have come to do. That's a staggering moment. So you can have the grief of betrayal. Uh, you can have what I would call just. General grief uh, in all kinds of ways. Second um, Corinthians four, you know, we're we're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We're, we're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. Or 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says, we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. What you don't know about the, the participle used to communicate sorrowful is it's actually an, a continual action. We're always sorrowing, yet always rejoicing. I wish that it's, it said it like that in your translation. I think it would help you. <laughs> we're always sorrowful and always rejoicing. That, that's the nature of the Christian life, isn't it? <laughs> We're always grieving about something in this fallen world, and yet our life isn't tied to this fallen world. It's, it's looking to a future hope of restoration, so we can yet always rejoice. There's godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, 2 Corinthians 7.10. Worldly sorrow doesn't lead to repentance, Judas. Godly sorrow does lead to repentance, Peter. When Peter betrayed the Lord and then he had an eye moment with Jesus, his eyes locked on Jesus, He went out and wept bitterly, grieved. Um, we can have grief like that. And of course, we can also have a sense of restoration in our grief. Lamentations 3, I'll close with this. Lamentations 3 is a section that you all know well. You, you probably say this verse to yourself on the regular <clears throat> about how God's mercies are new every morning. Does anybody tell yourself that kind of truth? What we often forget is the larger context of Lamentations 3. So I'll I'll read just a little bit. He, He is describing the Lord dealing with him and his people. He, the Lord, drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. The Lord shot me and pierced me through the kidneys. I have become a laughingstock of all the peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He, the Lord, has filled me with bitterness. He has stirred me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on the gravel. What a horrible picture that is. Lamentations 3:16. God, God has taken my head and shoved me in the rocks and made me eat gravel. That's what it feels like. He's made me cower in the ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Then he prays, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. When does he say that? In the throes of grief. As we evaluate our grief as a Christian, we have to have a focus on restoration. If you don't do that, if you don't grieve with hope, if you don't worship in your grief, if you don't believe the steadfast love of the Lord is new every morning to meet you in your struggle, then your grief will leave you here. And you will die in your depression you'll, you'll go to your grave in sorrow but if you live in this this hope of restoration there's a way to face your grief <clears throat> be comforted in your grief not ignore your grief not pretend you don't have loss and you know, not to say stupid machismo things you know i don't do pain um, men don't cry well jesus did so you're you're off already know, you, you see that there's something beyond this world and it creates in you a longing for what is to come, right? Weeping lasts for the night, Psalm 30, but joy comes in the morning or with the morning. Well, may the Lord help us as we you know, examine our grief to deal with it in that way, with a hope of restoration. May we face the reality that we are going to grieve, but may God come close to us to comfort us in our grief with His hope of restorative power. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank You that in our fallen condition, You are willing to be the one to ride the heavens to our help and put Your everlasting arms underneath us. Lord, we thank You that You keep our tears in Your bottle. We thank You, O Lord, that You've given us one another to be a source of comfort and to help us learn to reconnect. But Lord, we pray that You would make us long for the day when every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. Lord, help us to be motivated to worship, even in the deepest of our sorrows, because You haven't changed. And our hope for eternity, the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, will never perish or spoil or fade away. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.